If anyone shall set the authority of holy writ against clear and manifest reason, he who does this knows not what he has undertaken, for he opposes to the truth, not what is in the Bible, but what he has found in himself and imagines to be there. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to wrap up my mini-series on evolution. Uh, I've had a few really good episodes and I'd like to let you know what I've learned and what I'm planning to do. I'm looking at a couple new directions for uh, new coming podcasts. I want to discuss communicating science as a core of my um, goals with this podcast. And I also want to expand on some of my previous themes. I've touched on artificial intelligence and the conflict or perceived conflict between science and religion. Uh, And there's a crossover between these two topics uh, in the discussion of consciousness. What is consciousness? If you enjoy what you hear, please hit like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Uh, I'd also love to see you on the Facebook group at The Rational View. So, the evolution mini-series of podcasts, this is kind of my wrap-up episode. I started with an intro where I expressed a hesitancy to interview a real creationist and give them, platform them basically, because creationists aren't really an effective voice, uh, and they don't deserve the platform. So I decided not to go ahead with, with an interview of a creationist. Instead, I wanted to focus on the really interesting things that are coming out of science. The interesting uh, genetic sciences especially has, has, has gone through kind of a renaissance after the Human Genome Project. And the amount of genomic information we have has increased by orders of magnitude in the last decade or so uh, since the uh, the infrastructure was put in place to allow us to sequence entire genomes. So instead of uh, creationists, uh, I did interview uh, one religious person, Dr. Joshua Swamadas, who is a religious doctor with a young earth creationist upbringing who realized uh, when he went to school for uh, a doctor that he was being fed BS effectively. Swamidas is at odds with traditional evangelical young earth Christians like Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis in the Ark Encounter down in Kentucky. Uh, Swamidas epitomizes a person who was fully indoctrinated in a belief of a literal Genesis story. As he progressed through uh, biological science, he realized that the literalist interpretation that he was brought up with in his community was not in line with what he learned as as the evidence from nature, from observing God's primary creation. And at this point, you have to make a balance. You have to say, which, if you're a person of faith, what is the primary creation of God? Is it the Bible, a book written by men? Or is it the universe that we can look at with our brains and interpret individually and realize what actually happened? So Swamides, looking at this, came over to evolution. 
He remained Christian, but realized that there were other interpretations of the Bible that were consistent with the spiritual message. This is not a surprise. God said that the same day that um, Adam eats of the fruit, that they'll die. But except for that doesn't happen, right? They, they're exiled from the garden instead. And so he's really wrestling with that. Because if you're going to take it literally, well, then how do you deal with this fact that God said you're going to die right away, but you don't? <laughs> yes. Literally, that's a that's a contradiction. Yeah, especially when you think about your own creation of saying that day always means, you know, <laughs> um, 24 hours, right? Except for right there in the text, there's a day that is... I mean, something is going on there. Now, there's different ways to resolve it. And what the best way to resolve it is, I, uh, um, you know, I don't know. I'm not an exegete. But um, but I, I think Augustine's view is interesting because he resolves it in a way that I didn't expect but made a lot of sense in some level. He said that, well, what's going on here is that it's a spiritual death that he's talking about. And that is literal because that's actually a, a more salient reality from God's point of view than ours. From St. Augustine himself, around the year 400 AD, we hear a warning of using the Bible as a science text. If anyone shall set the authority of holy writ against clear and manifest reason, he who does this knows not what he has undertaken, for he opposes to the truth, not the meaning of the Bible, which is beyond his comprehension, but rather his own interpretation, not what is in the Bible, but what he has found in himself and imagines to be there. So this is not uh, a new thing. People have always been pushing their interpretations of the Bible uh, to have power over others. And naive literalist interpretations of the Bible have always been recognized as bad theology by leading uh, theologians. Now, a guy called Tertullian in the early church around the year 200 AD said, We conclude that God is known first through nature, and then again more particularly by doctrine, by nature in his works, and by doctrine in his revealed word. Look up Voices for Evolution, or the Clergy Letter Project, which shows, which shows huge support for evolutionary theory amongst most formal religions, including the Catholic Church. Pope John Paul II, uh, paraphrasing Galileo, says, The Bible tells you how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So following this, I interviewed Professor Welkin Johnson to get a grounding in the real data on genetics. And Dr. Johnson's work is on coevolution of viruses and host species. And we learned from him that the human genome has something over 200,000 copies of various viral genomes in it. And most of these are from infections that occurred before we split from our most recent common ape ancestor. And so the, these uh, retroviruses are shared with the chimpanzee. These paleovirus genomes exist in the same spot in our genomes and chimps' genomes. Here's uh, Professor Johnson. So an endogenous virus, retrovirus, is, is a sequence that arose by infection and insertion of viral DNA into a germline cell, but from there wound up in the organism's gene pool. And even though it's thought that this is probably a rare event during any given infection, over the course of vast evolutionary time, it's happened millions of times. And so the human genome itself has maybe a 200, 300,000 viral sequences in it. So there's 200,000 viruses in the human genome. 
Yeah, it's not really the viruses, it's their genetic material. It's what they've left behind. Uh, in most cases, that material is, is no longer capable of expressing virus. Uh, if it was, it would be detrimental, right? So, so natural selection has probably weeded out the ones that would produce virus and actually kill the host, right? So the, um, but from the point of view of paleovirology, what that means is, is our genomes, and in fact, the genomes of all vertebrate species, um, have thousands of these sequences that have been, that represent viral outbreaks and viral epidemics and viral pandemics of the past. So you can retrace wow. the history of viruses that have arisen and spread. Going back, um, you know, you can do it really easily within the last few million years, but you can still detect traces of virus sequences. They're still recognizable out past 50 million, even 100 million years old. Wow. So we probably have sequences in our genomes that represent viruses not that infected humans, but viruses that might have infected ancestors to modern humans. And not only that, but the function of the placenta is dependent on a particular viral gene that got introduced into the ancestor of all mammals 20 or 30 million years ago. And this means that Many mammals owe their existence to an ancient case of the flu. And then I, I think the most stunning example that people know about um, are the placental syncytins. So in mammals, mammals have a placenta that supports the, the uh, development of the fetus. And that placental structure turns out that one very important part of its development uh, involves proteins that several million years ago were actually from a virus, right? So there's, there's two genes in the human genome called syncytin-1 and syncytin-2 that very clearly trace back to, you know, probably, I forget, 20, 30 million years ago, a retroviral infection. These retroviral genes that got left behind turned out to be useful to the host, and they became incorporated into the development of the placenta. Wow. So it's, it's really, you could argue that, that the evolution, the appearance of the different mammalian uh, classes um, very much depended on this chance interaction with retroviruses in the distant past. That's really cool. So mammals owe their existence to uh, an ancient uh, case of the flu. Uh, we wrapped up that episode with a discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Next, I was honored to talk to Dr. Niles Eldridge, one of the co-discoverers of punctuated equilibrium, which is a theory of evolution which uh, explains some things that natural selection does not. Eldridge waxed eloquently about Darwin's voyage on the Beagle and the development of the idea of evolution through natural selection. Darwin remains a hero of mine, even though we were considered to be uh, critics of his of his work, we were we corrected one thing that he actually had caught sight of, but uh, couldn't find the evidence uh, to convince himself to pursue it. So he pursued uh, a more traditional, even by that time, more traditional view of gradualism. He went out on the Beagle from 1831 to 1836, and that he had been schooled as a medical student a very bad medical student because he was much more interested in natural history. Uh, when he was 16, I guess, he went he went to Edinburgh and spent two years there, and he learned about evolution there from two of the faculty members. 
his own grandfather, for that matter. He, he, he learned about evolution before the theory of... Oh, absolutely. His grandfather, uh, Erasmus, had written a book that's full of evolutionary stuff. He was a medical doctor, too, also had gone to Edinburgh. But um, I think evolution as a sort of a professional occupation of academic life starts, in my mind, around 1801 in Paris with Lamarck. I mean, he, mm. Lamarck, uh, we, we mock uh, Lamarck out, but he was a hero to Darwin. After that, he uh, told me about the observations of common descent that his theory was meant to explain. A theory of evolution, um, it is a hypothesis that life has evolved, but uh, you, there, there's a pattern of resemblance that, that was known all the way back to uh, certainly Linnaeus, but the Greeks saw it uh, you know, thousands of years ago. There's a pattern of resemblance that links up all living things. And the more detail you get right down to the DNA, which, as you say, didn't come along for another century and a half or so after Darwin. But uh, any aspect of the an anatomical or, uh, features of organisms are sort of radiate out the, in, in concentric circles. Like you and I, as human beings, resemble chimpanzees more than we resemble sponges. But if if uh, sponges have cellular structures and so forth. Even though they don't have organ systems, they're very primitive. They are animals. They have animal cells. I also learned the definition of the word allopatric, which means different places. And uh, Eldridge taught us about punctuated equilibrium as a modification of Darwin gradualism, where we see long periods of stasis in the fossil record that coincide with periods of stable environmental conditions. And they're followed by relatively sudden change in response to environmental changes. It's just geographic space, the speciation, plus the recognition and acknowledgement of this dominant pattern of stability mm -hmm. that you get. It's not anti-evolutionary, but things remain stable as long the as the environments remain stable. Because why mess with why mess with what works? Basically, it would be the concept mm, there. That's key. So, punctuated equilibrium. I always write on Twitter these days is allopatric geographic speciation plus stasis. That's what we call this, this pattern, which is very common. Almost everything is stable for much of, the, of its history. After Professor Eldridge, I interviewed Professor Lynn Honey, a philosopher who uses creationism as an example of logical fallacies in her critical thinking course. Uh, could you explain uh, what you're doing when you're teaching the controversy? Sure. And I think that I'm I'm using the term uh, with a very tongue in cheek um, because I, I use the term in a way that the creationists don't. Uh, and I think that the way that um, Meyer, who originally called for teaching the controversy and the other intelligent design folks, um, I think that they want to pit it as that false equivalence or the idea that these are two opposing positions that hold equal weight from a scientific perspective or, or even from a philosophical perspective, um, that those two concepts should be treated as equally valid uh, at the outset. And that's where I disagree entirely, because, of course, you've got one field with a ton of evidence um, and you've got another that is essentially a, a, a thought experiment on how to preserve your beliefs without looking like you ignore science. 
uh, but that fails as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. The way that I use the term teaching the controversy is I actually teach about the controversy. I don't pit those two ideas against each other. I explain in a, you know, kind of historical way where this controversy came from uh, or where this alleged controversy came from. And I um, describe it in terms of uh, two different styles of thinking. So a scientific style of thinking and a non-scientific style of thinking. We found that interpreting human behavior in an evolutionary sense is not really scientific. And some people in evolutionary psychology are guilty of building what I would call just-so stories to able to explain any particular observation. And as they're unfalsifiable and unverifiable, these particular things can't really be called scientific. I don't consider myself an evolutionary psychologist. And the reason I don't call myself an evolutionary psychologist is because I have some discomfort with the methods used by a number of my colleagues in who call themselves evolutionary psychologists. Okay. Um, I, I do take an evolutionary approach to human behavior, and I realize that it might sound like the same thing. Um, but, you know, EP as a, you know, capital evolutionary and capital psychology as a kind of sub-discipline has some problems associated with it, and I would rather not be part of those problems. Um, so I'm an experimental psychologist and, uh, you know, I do study topics that have, that it's important to look at from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, but I don't consider myself an evolutionary psychologist. Uh, so partly it is that the research that I do, we can't directly test evolutionary hypotheses with some of this stuff. Um, social behaviors don't fossilize well. And so you're always... You always face that difficulty of, of teasing apart how much of this is biological, how much of this is learned. Um, you know, does the does the culture have this because they're of these evolved predispositions or vice versa? And so I hesitate to say that I'm always looking at adaptations when I'm doing my research. I'm looking at human behavior. I consider evolutionary approaches to it, but I can't always say that I'm testing an evolutionary hypothesis. And then finally, I interviewed uh, Razib Khan. Boy, that did not go the way I expected. I found that Razib is a bit of an oddity, an atheist Republican uh, who is a self-professed libertarian when it comes to eugenics. Yeah, so I think everything, disease is going to be hit first. Um, I don't think you're going to have huge arguments about disease. Um, I do think genetic screening is going to be like the first thing that you do. So when it comes to the germline, probably you're not going to edit embryos for a long time. Okay. Like what you're going to do is select from a bunch of embryos. I see. Okay. So if you have two copies of, so uh, yeah, you, 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 you're going to select through screening first. I think that's going to be happening first, probably for the next 10 years. And then some people want to edit embryos. What they're going to do is like, oh, I don't have a perfect embryo. So I'm going to take the best embryo and then I'm going to edit it. That's what they'll think. Um, and so and what I personally think about it, because I think you've asked a couple of times, uh, I'm pretty much a genetic libertarian at this point, but I'm open to legislation. But um, basically, we just need to have a conversation about it and not be hysterical. I don't think people are actually being super honest about what's going on yeah. right now. Um, when a lot of academics talk about eugenics, like I said, uh, they actually do it all the time. They're just using a buzzword, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, what does eugenics mean? Is you know, screening Down syndrome eugenics or not? 
Um, that's a debate you can have. Um, you know, I heard like there's some diets that are like eugenics because they're anti-fat person or so. I don't know, just stupid things like that. Uh, some academics like engage in that sort of talk, you know? So let's be precise about what we mean by eugenics. Is it allowed? Is it not allowed? What's the legislation? What's the moral impact? Um, you know, we don't want everyone to turn into a clone. There are some genetic reasons for that. Like everyone to turn, look exactly the same and have the exact same genes. So there might be an issue where, so there are possibilities. So I'm a genetic libertarian. Like I'm like, uh, individual choice first and foremost, but there are issues where there might be coordination or collective action problems where you don't want everybody to have the exact same genome. You don't want all humans to be exactly the same, right? But if everybody wants this exact same perfect human, like, you know, maybe all everyone's going to edit that way. So you just, you just have to like think about it and um, set up society in a way where this is fair, this is just, and this is best for everybody. But um, again, it requires rational discussion. Now, Razib is very knowledgeable about the science of genetics. His impression of creationists as a waste of time is a very common one amongst scientists. Yeah, so I think about evolution, think about evolutionary theory, Darwin's theory of, uh, you know, common descent with adaptation being driven by natural selection. Uh, this idea of the tree of life. Think of that. I think listeners and viewers can think of that as, uh, you know, the scaffold of a house, the wooden or stone scaffold of a house, the superstructure. Like we're at the stage where, like, we're building the rooms and installing the tubs <laughs> and figuring out the exact layout. So if you're just like coming in, you're like, you know, like this scaffold, it's not right. I'm just like, okay, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm working on some details here. Like, I don't want to, like, have this stupid argument that, like, oh, actually, we should do, like, a totally different scaffold because this doesn't work. And I'm like, it works. We got a roof. Okay. We got a roof. The interior heating's, you know, I'm just remodeling now. Okay. I'm figuring out the details. Like, I'm not going to have this argument about where the house should be built and how it should be built because it's done. Okay. That's how I'm feeling. Like, I don't want to have discussions about creationism because... Life is short. I'm going to die someday, hopefully later than sooner. And there's so much I want to know. So on that note, I bring my mini series on evolution to an end. I hope you were entertained and perhaps learned something. I'll continue to explore the evidence and listen to the new discoveries. And if I find anything that makes me go, wow, I'll be sure to let you know. Now for what's next uh, coming up on the podcast, I'm working on a couple different ideas. I'm looking to explore the ideas surrounding consciousness, human consciousness, themes that have come up in my series on artificial intelligence and again in my discussions of science and religion. Questions like, what does it mean to be sentient? Do we have free will? Are we biological computers simply? Or is there something more, some mystical, unexplained spark of life force that gives us consciousness and either separates or even potentially unites us with the rest of the cosmos. Do we need a soul to explain the problem of consciousness? And what is the problem of consciousness? These questions intrigue me and are being studied from a range of angles by philosophers, theologians, computer scientists, physicists, neuroscientists, and many more. I'm looking forward to learning more and sharing my journey with you. The second direction that I'm exploring is to learn how to better communicate the ideas of science and rationality in a polarized world. I want to teach you what I've learned on my journey, how to communicate using empathy and patience in a medium 
that is dominated by highly refined divisive memes designed to create fear and anger and hatred. I want to arm you to join me in the fight for science and rationality in public policy. I will teach you what I have learned and inoculate you against the pandemic of ignorance. I'll help you to help me hold back the onslaught of misinformation and make a better future for us and our children. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.